You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay, good afternoon. So today what we're going to talk about being that coming up, we're now in the 10 days of repentance. Yes, this Torah reading is the Torah reading of Hazinu, which is the second to the last Torah reading of the Torah. But also because we're in the 10 days of repentance, we'll talk about Yom Kippur coming up. So we're going to uh, talk about the day of Yom Kippur, what it's about, but more importantly, how Yom Kippur begins. There's a, there was a well-known, today not so well-known, but he was well-known in the past, known in the people who were, so to speak, in the mystical, spiritual, psychological type of people known in Germany by a fellow by the name of philosopher Franz Rosenzweig. Franz Rosenzweig was a Jewish person who lived about 100 years ago, grew up in a very liberal family. Most of his family assimilated. Many of his cousins and his relatives have all uh, converted to Christianity. And one time, after having a long debate with one of his cousins about Judaism, his cousins convinced him that Judaism is a disappearing religion, and therefore it's time for him to convert to Catholicism, to Christianity. And after Rosh Hashanah, France meets his mother, his mother who was not a religious woman at all, and his mother, and as he holds the Tanakh, he was holding the, the Tanakh, but instead of holding the Tanakh, he brought her the Christian Bible, the New Testament. And he told his mother that after Yom Kippur, he's converting to Christianity. And he told his mother that what he wants to do is he wants to go to shul on Yom Kippur. And after he goes to shul on Yom Kippur, the next day he's going to go and convert to Christianity because he wants to show that he's converting to Christianity not out of ignorance, but out of because he finally figured out what the truth was. His mother was really upset with him and said, no way are you coming to shul with me on Yom Kippur after such type of things that you espouse, that you want to convert to Christianity. This is disgusting. And never are you, oh, and you're not coming with me to synagogue. And she told him, get out of my house. Franz left his home, traveled to Berlin. And in Berlin, he decided that he's going to go to Shul and Yom Kippur because, again, that was his thing. He wanted to convert to Christianity coming from, so to speak, a religious perspective, not out of ignorance. And he goes and he finds an Orthodox synagogue in Berlin and he gets, comes to the synagogue in Berlin and he stays there all of Yom Kippur. And he becomes so changed and so uh, shaken by the prayers of Yom Kippur that all of a sudden he decided he gave up on his ways of converting to Christianity, and eventually <clears throat> he found a way of repentance and converted, and I did not convert to Christianity, and became an observant Jew, and passed at a very young age as an observant Jew. What was the prayer that seemingly most changed his life, that got him to change and to recognize and to realize the importance of what it means to be a Jew, was the prayer of Kol Nidre. And the stirring prayer of Kol Nidre, he says, is what transformed him and got him to understand and appreciate what it means to be a Jew. And because of that, 
he didn't convert to Christianity. There's a similar story that's told about the Chassid. I usually say the story before Kal Nidre, a fascinating story. There was a Chassid, he was known as the very well-known um, um, Chazan, and he used to lead the services for Kal Nidre in Kfar Chabad every year. His name was Reb Zalman Brunstein. Reb Zalman Brunstein was a very musically talented individual who um, went through Siberia. And when he was in the labor camps, he was really not feeling well, wasn't able to make it through the difficulty of the winter. And one time, while he was like in the showers, he hears one of the generals singing one of the Russian songs, but he was singing it off note and like totally destroying the song. And as a person who was musically inclined, he was like upset the way this fellow was singing. So from the other shower stall, he starts correcting him on the song and telling him, you're singing it wrong. The general who hears him singing says, what kind of voice you got? And you're sitting here in the labor camps? And he schlepped him into the choir, in the Russian Red Army choir, which saved his life eventually, and which brought him to be, um, that he was go around singing with the Red Army choir. But what happened was, that one time he sees the calendar and he sees that the Red Army Choir is scheduled to be singing for a bunch of doctors and all the elites of the army, if you want to call it, of the government, and the scheduled day was supposed to be Yom Kippur. And he realizes that and he says, I'm not going to go sing all these songs and go and perform on the day of Yom Kippur. So already a few days before, he sort of, all of a sudden, contracted laryngitis and he said his throat is hurting and he's not able to sing and he has to stay in bed. He's no longer able to go. So he couldn't sing. The people in the choir were upset because they knew that without him, the choir is not going to sound the same. But he's stuck in bed. Yom Kippur morning, he's lying in bed, singing to himself the prayers because since he has to officially be sick in bed, all of a sudden three commanders of the, Cyber, of the Russian army walk in to him and says, Brunstein, we know it's Yom Kippur today. Let's go. And he goes out into the field. And he starts singing all the prayers that he knew by heart. And he's standing there singing. And what did he know? One of the very famous ones that he knew was Kol Nidre. And he starts singing Kol Nidre, even though it was the next morning. And he sings Kol Nidre, and he's singing. And, uh, and it, it was, there's a famous Hasidic song they called the Paltavanigan, and he was singing it. All the, you know, out in the field, nobody was there. So you can imagine he was on his high, finally able to sing the Yom Kippur prayers. And as he's singing the Kol Nidre song, he turns around, and he sees these three burly commanders who came who schlepped them out, crying, sobbing. You can see that they were brought back to their childhood of the Kol Nidre prayer that was originally back then. And the Kol Nidre prayer is a very well-known prayer that we sing with great emotion. And then you take out the Torah, there's three Torahs, and in fact, there's one of the only things that it actually says in the prayer book, which is a big mitzvah to buy, is the, is, the first mitzvah, is the first Torah for Kol Nidre, and you stand there and the Chazan sings it, there's some type of atmosphere and greatness to it. You know, they even say, there's a saying in the uh, Talmud, everything needs mazel. Even a Sefer Torah in the Ark needs mazel, because you have, let's say, every single week you read one Torah. But if you have an Ark full of ten Torahs, the Torah needs a mazel that it should be used at the Shabbos, or it should be used ever. So everything needs mazel. So even a prayer, what is it that made the Kol Nidre prayer so popular? What is it so unique about the Kol Nidre prayer that all of a sudden every single synagogue gets known to everybody, everybody comes to shul, they have to hear Kol Nidre. What's so popular about the Kol Nidre prayer? You know, there's so many other prayers that are said 
that don't even make it to such popularity. What is it with the Kol Nidri prayer that made it so popular? Not only that, if you look at the Kol Nidri prayer, just read the words, what does it say? All the vows that I made should be null and void. From this Yom Kippur to the next Yom Kippur, they're not promises, they're not vows, they should be null and void. It's basically a transaction. Not only that, we already made that transaction before Rosh Hashanah. We already said all my, my vows should be null and void. So what's so uh, special, that's so popular and so stirring, so soul-stirring that everybody comes to hear the Kol Nidre prayer? This question... Is already asked many times before in many different books. And over a hundred years ago, they asked this question. What is so exciting about the Kalnitri prayer that we say with such crying and such emotion that it shows that it changes people so much? And we're going to look at today analyzing the, the, this Kalnitri prayer, understanding it from a practical perspective why we say it, but at the same time looking at it going deeper into the esoteric and based on the talk of the Alter Rebbe to understand what's so impressive and what's so soul-stirring about this prayer of the Kol Nidre that it's so transformative for many people and why it became so popular. So we start by first taking the simple interpretation of why we even say the Kol Nidre prayer. The Mishnah tells us that any person who is obligated to bring any different types of sacrifices and Yom Kippur passes, he still has to bring them after Yom Kippur. Meaning, very simple thing, that if you're obligated or you ob obligate yourself, whether you make a vow and you decide that I want to bring A, B, and C, even if Yom Kippur passes, you still have an obligation to bring them. So though Yom Kippur atones for all the sins, but it doesn't relieve you from your obligations. Now this is not only talking about personal obligations, but this is talking about spiritual obligations. If a person says, I'm going to bring a sacrifice or I'm going to do X, Y, and Z for whatever it may be, a person then has an obligation to bring those sacrifices and just because Yom Kippur passed, it does not take away that obligation from him and therefore he still has to bring it after Yom Kippur. Even more so, if you obligate yourself to somebody else, for example, you promise you're going to give a person, whether it's $100, $1,000, whatever it may be, you obligate something to somebody. And because of that, the person depends on it. So now this person doesn't get it. He is in pain because of it. You now have an obligation to give it to him. And Yom Kippur doesn't relieve you from that. So if you obligated yourself, for example, to do something for somebody, you then have to give it to that person. Yom Kippur doesn't relieve you from it. Two very famous examples are, Yaakov was, he promised God that when Yaakov was running away from his brother Esau, after he stole the blessings, or after he got the blessings by the advice of his mother, he then was told by his parents to go to his brother Laban, and on the way, he was attacked by Esau's son, and over here he was left with nothing, and he was worried when it comes to love, and how is he going to survive? He makes a promise to God that if I come back wholesome, I'm not touched, and I'm able to come back, I will bring a sacrifice to God. He comes back, he survives the 21 years, he survives Esav, he survives Lavan, and he's on his way back already, and he comes to the place of Sukkos, and he still doesn't bring, and he doesn't keep his word. What happens in the next town over, when he comes to the place of Shechem, Dina is captured. And the Talmud tells us that why was Dina captured? This was a, 
a payback, so to speak. This was a punishment for the fact that he didn't keep his word, that he was supposed to bring a sacrifice according to his promise. He didn't keep to his promise, even though eventually he did, but because that should have been the first thing on his mind, you made a promise to God, you have to keep it. So that's number one promise that a person has to keep, is if you make a promise to God, I'm going to come to shul, I'm going to give to charity, whatever it may be, any type of promise that a person makes, Yom Kippur does not absolve you from it, and you need to keep it anyways after Yom Kippur. That's number one type of promise. Then there's a second type of promise. A second type of promise is the promise that you make to your friend. You promise you're going to give them something. You promise you're going to help them with something. Whatever it may be, you have to keep that as well. For example, we have Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses, when he meets God the first time and he, uh, by the burning bush, God tells him, go back to Jethro and ask Jethro permission to go to Egypt. Why did he have to ask Jethro permission to go to Egypt? And that was because the first time Moses met Jeff, Jethro's daughters, which was Sephora's wife, the well. And at that point, at that point, Moshe was a fugitive. He ran away from Egypt. Egypt, they wanted to kill him. Jethro was afraid to take him into his home. So therefore, Jethro said, I'm only going to take you into my house on condition that you never return to Egypt. Because the moment you return to Egypt, you're going to leave my wife. You're going to get killed there. So now that God tells Moshe that he has to go down to Egypt, what does God tell Moshe? First, you have to go ask Jethro permission, if you're allowed to leave. Only after Jethro gives you permission to allow them to go to Egypt, can you then go down to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let the people go. So we see very clearly that God wanted him to absolve himself from the promise that he made to Jethro before he even goes down to Egypt, even if it means leading the Jewish people out of Egypt, because when you make a promise to somebody, we have to make sure we keep to our word, and Yom Kippur is not going to help you absolve it. There's a following story brings out the importance where the word neder, making a promise, is not just words that I say. But when you say you are going to do something, you actually create with your words an atmosphere that obliges you and commits you to what you need to do. And the Talmud tells us an interesting story. The Rishonim, it's brought down, the story is brought in the Aruch. The Aruch is a commentator that explains words of the Talmud. And it says it in the... Uh, in a story concerning a woman who was very beautiful and she was going to her uh, father's home and she was on the way, she was traveling in the desert and she was very thirsty. And because she was very thirsty, she decided to lower herself into a well to drink some water. But what happened was she herself, once she lowered herself to the well to get the water, she couldn't get herself back up. And a fellow was walking by and she was yelling, please help me, help me, get me out of here. And finally, a man walks by and hears a voice coming from the well. And he says, are you from the spirits or are you a human? She says, I'm a human. She says, if you're a human, then I will bring you up. I will help you out of the well. But on one condition, that you'll marry me. So she said, fine. So he just pulls her out of the well. And they made a condition. And they said, listen here. You see this mouse that's running across the well. And this water... Those are the witnesses that we commit each other to marriage. That's it. She went on to her city. He went on to his city. She never married anybody else. But he went and found another woman, another beautiful woman, and married her. And they had a child. And the first child was about three months old. A mouse came, a weasel came, bit the child and killed the child. They have another child. And that child mysteriously drowned in a well. His wife tells him, Something's fishy here. 
these two kids of hearts, if they would have just died by crib death, whatever it may be, of something of natural causes, I would understand. But these two ways how they died, one by drowning and one by a weasel, something doesn't make sense here. Tell me what's going on. And then he reminds himself of this story that he promised to marry this woman. And he said that the weasel and the, uh, and the water were going to be witnesses. The wife told him, then if so, you have to get divorced and go marry that woman. He got divorced from this woman and went and married that woman. What do we see from over here? The, pro- the concept of marrying, the concept of keeping to our word. That the words we say are not just words, fleeting words that gone by and today I say them, tomorrow they have no meaning. Every word we say has meaning and has importance to it. The very fact that we have in Jewish law tells us that it's sometimes better don't make a promise if you're not going to keep to it than making a promise and not keeping to it. It's better that a person should do something. If you want to do a mitzvah, do the mitzvah, but don't make a promise. Because if you make a promise and you don't keep to it, that's even worse. So now let's go to where we are when we come and we're preparing ourselves for the Day of Judgment of Yom Kippur. On one hand, we have the promises, the obligations that we made. And on the other hand, we have the obligations that maybe we can't keep them. Therefore, what did our sages do? Our sages said that before we begin the holiest day of the year, before we go into judgment with Almighty God, say kol nidre. Why are we saying kol nidre? It's because just in case I made a promise, just in case I obliged myself to something, the number one thing I'm doing, I'm disowning my vows, I'm saying I don't, keep those, I don't have to keep them. Now don't forget, these are only vows that may one have made by mistake. If you know about a vow, consciously, you can't say, oh, call Nidre, that's it, I don't have to keep to it. Of course, you have to keep to what you said, and that's where Yom Kippur doesn't absolve you from it. However, if we're talking about vows that a person is not conscious of, he doesn't realize, he doesn't know that he made them, over here we come along and we say, call Nidre takes us away from those vows. Now, why do we do them again if we already did it Erev Rosh Hashanah? So over here, there's answers, is because there's many people in the synagogue, more people are there then, so therefore, Kol Nidre is another way of absolving ourselves from all vows. So this seems like a very um, simple interpretation for the reason of why we're making the blessing of absolving ourselves from the vows. A very logical reason, because we don't want to go into the holiest day of owing anything to anybody, and therefore we make the Kol Nidre. But the question is again, if this is such an important thing, Kol Nidre could have been a statement, like we say by every other prayer, like we have by Rosh Hashanah. You get this together, you say the statement, and done. How did it become to this big, elaborate song, chazanus, soul-stirring moment, that the Torahs are brought out, and all of a sudden this became the highlight of the prayer, so to speak. So it's interesting that in this actual prayer, there's a difference between the way the Ashkenazic Jews say it and the Sephardic Jews say it. Sephardic Jews, when they say the prayer, they not only say about the current Yom Kippur, like in our prayer, in the Ashkenazic prayer, it says from this Yom Kippur to the following Yom Kippur. In the Sephardic prayer, it says from this Yom Kippur to the previous Yom Kippur as well. That means I'm going from last year to this year on to next year. This is actually a debate that goes to the time of the Bali Atosvos in the 11th century. The Rabbeinu Tam, he talks about it and he explains and he says as follows. And he says, I don't understand the Sephardic method that they want to, disva- they want to um, absolve themselves from vows that they made in the previous year. He says, how can you do that? First of all, to absolve yourself from a vow, you have to have three competent judges. Secondly, you have to enumerate what you did wrong. And thirdly, he says, you have to have regret about what you've done. 
In the Kol Nidra, you don't have either of them. There's no words of regret. There's no, um, you don't have anything, you're not enumerating what you said. You're saying any vow, any promise, you're not saying what you did. And number three, do you have three uh, expert judges? So there are those that explain, well, there are so many people in the synagogue and amongst them there can be three expert judges. You don't have to enumerate because only in certain places you have to enumerate. But, and some would even argue that according to Rabbeinu Tam, he made it even worse. Because what are you saying basically? Any vow I make from this year until next year is null and void. So you're making a whole joke out of all the vows. Because basically what I'm saying means nothing. Why? Because I already said any vow that I make is null and void. They say a story about a fellow. He asks his father for some business advice. So his father tells him, I have two pieces of advice. Number one, you have to keep any promise you make. Number two, don't make any promises. <laughs> so what's Rabbeinu Tam saying here? Is Rabbeinu Tam he's thinking that he's going to fix the problem? On the contrary, it's going to make things worse. If we're saying that any vow or promise that I make for the coming year is null and void, so then when is a vow of purpose? What is it worthwhile? And therefore the Beis Yosef, who is the codifier of Jewish law, and, he, and his commentary says, on the contrary, when we say the Kol Nidre, the Kol Nidre itself is testimony to the fact that you are regretting what you've done wrong, or else I would never say it, or else what's the purpose of me saying it if I don't regret what I did wrong? And the very fact that there are people there, there's already three people there, and, not, and about the details of the law, okay, if he has a detail of a vow that he wants to make, he'll go and go to somebody who will give him the detail of the vow and be able to annul it. The bottom line is, whether you go according to the Sephardic tradition or the Ashkenazic tradition, either way, it seems like the Kol Nidre is just merely a technical prayer, not an elaborate, soul-stirring, moving prayer that became today. And the question is, how did that happen? And for this, we go a little deeper, looking into the esoteric and looking into the Kabbalah, which is in the words of the Zohar. And the Zohar tells us as follows. The Zohar says that the moment that we absolve and ask for our vows to be annulled, we are in essence asking that God's vows on us should be annulled. What does that mean? That we are asking of God, that the same way there may be, we are annulling the vows down here, so that God above should annul, should annul any vows or any decrees or anything that were against us, that they should be annulled. And thereby, taking all the things that may be against us should all be annulled. The Zohar explains that God made a vow that He will nil we enter into the Jerusalem below. So therefore we ask of God to annul the vow to say that He's not going to enter into the Jerusalem above and therefore He should be able to enter and bring about Mashiach and can bring about the redemption even before we're befitting for it. That means God said He's only going to only bring Mashiach when we're ready for it. So therefore we are know that vow that He can even bring Mashiach even when we're not ready for it. That was what the Zohar tells us. Another explanation, which is brought in other commentators, but these are in commentators only of the last hundred years or so, that they bring about this interesting rationale of why Kol Nidre is said right at the beginning of Yom Kippur. And this was said, it was said because the Muranos, the Convertos, during the Spanish Inquisition, that they had to live a double life. On the outside, they lived like Muslim, uh, Christians, and on the uh, on inside, they lived like Jews. This also happened later on in the Mashadi Persians, 
also had to live on the outside like Muslims, and on the inside lived like Jews. And once a year they would come together and they would tell God, Kol Nidre, all those promises. That means what you see on the externality. When you see us doing throughout the year, that's not really who we are. Our vows and our promises that we made to the, to the non-Jews, or you want to call it to the, um, to the Christians of the time, are not considered vows. Who we truly are is who we stand today in synagogue. And that was why Kol Nidre became such a, if you want to call it an emotional prayer. That's one of the answers that are given, and again, that's not brought in earlier century books, that's something that was later mentioned in the later books. However, if we take it a little step further, and we're going to look at it from a perspective, from the Hasidic perspective, from the way the Alter Rebbe explains it, it gives us a better understanding and a more of an appreciation to understanding that why this prayer became such an emotional and, and an important prayer by all Jews. But first, with a story. A story known about the great chassid from the great Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin. Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin was known as the Holy Ruzhin. And he once, one of his chassidim, was going to, on his way to travel, to visit, to be by his Rebbe for Hanukkah. And as you know, in Ukraine, during the time of the winter, it gets very snowy. And as he's traveling, he had to stop off by a Jewish-owned inn to be able to stay the night and to be able to continue on his travels the next day. But in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, loud knocks on the door, and a group of bandits come bashing into the place, destroying the place, taking everything that's there, and want to take everybody there captive. This fellow, realizing that he's, the bandits are soon going to make it to his room, and that his life is up, because soon they're going to attack him as well, this chassid, sits down on the floor, takes out a Zohar, and starts crying and studying and praying, his last prayers. As the bandits are going from room to room, the fellow knocks on the door and all of a sudden sees this chassid sitting on the floor crying. Something stopped him. He says, what's going on here? What's he saying? What's he reading? Who is this person? And all of a sudden he sees this fellow is an old friend of his. And this head of the bandit sits down next to the chassid and introduces himself. He says, you know who I am? Remember me, Moshe? He says, Moshe, what are you, abandons? You used to be the top of the class. Not only were you the top of the class, when it came time to marriage, you married one of the most wealthiest girls in town. What happened to you? How did you end up abandoned? What are you doing here? And the fellow starts sitting with him and crying. He says, you know what happened to me? I used to work. I was, not, I was sitting and studying. I was sitting and studying in the side where my father-in-law had a very wealthy, you know, estate, where people would come and visit from all places. And one time, one of these people came to visit, a group of bandits came to visit, and they had an argument, they had a fight. And I was sitting on the side, and they asked me, can I sort out their fight? And me, of course, I have a good Gemara cup, and I was able to sort out the fight. And from then on, I became the mediator, that whenever these bandits had a problem with how to split the goods and their spoils of that they got, they would come to me and I would mediate for them and decide who should get it. And I was thinking to myself, what's the big deal? They're not taking my money. They're not taking a Jew's money. They're going bandit people on the street. So what's the big deal for me if I can help them out and make a few bucks on the side? But slowly but surely, I was getting more and more part of their business that any time, any thing happened, I would have to be there to help the spoils, split the spoils, until one day they really got into a fight 
and there was a big argument, and I was brought in, and I had to go down to the place, and I took a hammer, and I knocked the guy over the head, and I killed the guy, and they saw how good I am, they made me the head of the bandits. Once I became head of the bandits, there was no turning around. And this is where I am today. And finally, he was able to get him to leave the bandits and return to who he really was. But what happened here? What happened with this person? You start off with a well-meaning intended thing, but slowly but surely you get dragged into something which you never wanted to be in. Benazai, if we look at the mission and ethics of our fathers, tells us, run to even a small mitzvah and run away even from a small transgression. Because one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah and one transgression leads to another transgression. It may seem like nothing, but more than you know that you're actually doing the transgression, you don't realize what the transgression is actually doing to you. That means after you do something wrong, you never become the same person. You never return to being that same person as you were before you did that thing. King David says it in Psalm 51, V'chatosi negdi summit. My sin will always be there. As much as tshuva that he did, as much as he repented, as much as he asked God for repentance, and King David was a tzaddik, he got rid of his evil inclination. He fasted for so many days, but he still said, there's still a remnant, there's still something there that will always be there. Our mannerisms, our humanity, who we are, changes, is tarnished forever. They say a story about once this teacher and student was walking, and they're walking past the river, and it was Shabbos. And they see in the river a woman is drowning, and she's screaming for help. So the rabbi jumps into the river, because that's the law. You see a woman drowning, you see a person drowning on Shabbos, saving life is paramount of importance. He jumps into the river, saves the woman, gives her a bit, gets her back to life, and keeps on moving. The student, a few, month, a few hours later, still bewildered by what happened, turns to the rabbi, the teacher, and he says, Teacher, how did you do such a thing? How are you able to take? I'm still amazed how you're able to go. How are you allowed to take a scantily dressed woman and save her from the water? How can you do that? So the teacher turns to the student and says, I already put the woman down hours ago. It seems like this woman, you're still carrying her around for a while. <laughs> Sometimes we think about things and we're more engrossed about it thinking about it even though we're really not even doing it but what the Talmud tells us over here is is that when a person does a mitzvah that one mitzvah is forever walking in front of you but if God forbid we have that transgression that wraps the person around them and is always with them until the day of judgment Rabbi Eliezer uses the terminology it wraps them like a dog. You know, like a dog is always attached by the boys running on the side of you. So too that transgression is always there. And here's where the Alter Rebbe comes along and tells us. He says, what's the word for a prohibition in the Torah? The word is Isur. A prohibition comes from the word Isur, which means tied up. Like a person who's a, in prison is called Asur. Matir Asurim. The one who unbinds those who are tied up. When a person does something which is prohibited, he becomes bound, he becomes tied, imprisoned, locked by the things that he has done, that he has no way for him to save himself from it. That to the extent that as we know, that once a person does something once wrong, 
Then all of a sudden he convinces himself, eh, it wasn't that bad. And therefore it wasn't that bad, he comes and continues to do it again and again and again. And eventually it becomes, oh, that's who I am, it's normal for him. But eventually what happens is, even when he tries to repent from it, what happens is, he says, oh, I'm too far gone. I did this, I already did it once. He has that depressing, despondent type of behavior and act towards it. So the Avera, the transgression, kills him on both ends. Kills him on one end, so to speak, because it keeps on dragging him down. Doesn't allow him to get out of it because he thinks there's no way out of it. And therefore, he's like imprisoned by it. And therefore, either becomes too lazy or becomes too engrossed in it. Or he says, forget it, I have no way out of it. We see this story as well, a very famous story that we read, that the Talmud tells us about, Reish Lakish. Reish Lakish, his name was Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. He was the brother-in-law of Rabbi Yechanan. How did he become the brother-in-law of Rabbi Yechanan? And the Talmud tells us a very fascinating story. That once Rabbi Yechanan was bathing by the water, and Reish Lakish sees him, and Rishlakish at that time was the head of the bandits and he was so strong that he was able to leap from one side of the river to the other side of the river. And he saw Rabbi Yechanan and he leaped towards Rabbi Yechanan and he saw beautifully what Rabbi Yechanan told him with such strength you should be studying Torah. So Rishlakish, who was smart responded and said with such beauty you should be a woman. So Rabbi Yechanan said you know what? If you decide to embrace the study of Torah I'll give you my sister to marry. And my sister is just as beautiful as I am. So he says, okay. And he committed himself to studying Torah that he became the great scholar Ishlakish. And he was a student of Rabbi Yechanan. And one time Rabbi Yechanan when they were learning and they were talking about metal. That a certain type of metal, if it's able to become impure. And... Rabbi Yechanan said that such a type of metal, such a type of vessel, when you put it in the fire, it loses its material, and therefore it's no longer susceptible to becoming impure. Rabbi Yechanan, on the other hand, said this type of arms, it was a piece of metal, it can stay, doesn't change that easily, and therefore it's still considered a vessel to become tame. And they were having this debate. So Rabbi Yechanan tells him, no. You probably know better about this metal because you were once a robber, so you still know how these things work. So therefore, you probably, I will go with your opinion. Reish took those words very much to heart and he became offend, was offended by it to the extent that he became completely lost because of it and died eventually. Rabbi Yechanan saw what happened, took this so much to heart that he, because of what he said, affected his prized student and died because of it, that he himself became depressed because of it and eventually died. When he was so depressed because of it, the students tried to console him and comfort him and say, you didn't say anything wrong. You just said it in jest. There was nothing to be worried about. And they tried teaching him and every time he said something, they proved him right and showing him that he still knew his Torah. And he looked at them and said, you're proving me right. Whenever I said something, Rabbi Yechanan had, Rabbi Yishlakish had 25 questions to ask on it. I don't need your proofs. But what was it that bothered Yishlakish so much? Was that it awakened within him. He saw that I did something wrong in my life and I'll never be able to get rid of it. It's always going to be there. You know, what's the, why does it say like, like a dog? You know, what does a dog do? 
A dog is not in the front. Whenever you go, it's running behind you. It's always on the side of you. The same idea is also that Avera, it's not front and center of you, but it always like shows up where you don't want it. You know, it always that thing, that, those weeds that show up where you don't want it. And this is the problem with the Avera. And therefore it comes, and therefore we come now back to Kol Nidre. Why is Kol Nidre talk to every Jew? Why is Kol Nidre such a soul-stirring prayer? Why is Kol Nidre so emotional that every single person relates to it? Because what is Kol Nidre saying? You know, the word in Hebrew for the prosecution is the Satan. If you take the numeric value of the Satan, is 364. Telling us that the Satan works 364 days. But there's one day the Satan doesn't work. Yom Kippur. And over here, as we enter into Yom Kippur, we're saying to God, Kol nidrei va'asare, all the promises and the prohibitions. What is the word prohibition? Meaning the things that lock me in, the things that confine me, those sins that don't allow and don't escape me, those things that I've done in my life that keep on haunting me, that are there around me and I can't get rid of them. I am asking of God, they should be betail and umuvutol, and they should be null and void. They should be out of my mind, out of sight. They should not exist. They should not be there. A Jew, when he comes into Yom Kippur, he is not talking about a technical detail about a vow that he made, if he's obliged to it or not. That he already did Rosh Hashanah, he got rid of any of those vows. When he's standing in front of Yom Kippur, in front of the day of judgment, he's asking of Almighty God, those prohibitions, those sins that I know that I've done, this past year, this coming year, that's not who my identity is. I don't want it to be part of me. I don't want it to have anything against me. I don't want it even to be part of me in any shape or form. It shouldn't show up in any way. Because I know that when I get in touch with my godly soul, my godly soul gives me the ability to be strong and to stand up against all the winds in the world, that I have that ability to be able to be strong. As the prophet told us, that we see it in the prophet that Bilam told the Jewish people, that can be strong as a lion, and against all the nations of the world, no matter what happens to them, God has that relationship with them. And over here we're standing at the day of Yom Kippur, that we're telling God, I know today there is no prosecution. And I know today that you're going to judge me for who I am, and not for what I have done. Not for the prohibitions, not for what I confined myself to. I'm leaving all those confinements. I'm leaving all those prohibitions. I'm leaving prison, so to speak, behind me. Because today I'm becoming in touch with you, Almighty God. Me and God is one. Now as we enter into the holy day of Yom Kippur, nothing holds me back. There's nothing that I have even on the peripheral. Nothing that I have on the horizon. Nothing that's going to come back to haunt me. Anything that I've done in the past no longer is in existence. There is no prosecution today. I and God can be as one. And for this reason, the Kol Nidre gives us the ability to feel that union, to feel that relationship, that we can be like the lion in the relationship, the lion connected to God, where nothing that happened in the past matters to us. This is the importance of this prayer of Kol Nidre. We enter into the holy day, clean slate, nothing there. Why? Because even those things that are usually in the peripheral, Kol Nidre, we say, God, null and void. Please take them away. Today on this day of holiness, there's nothing that should come to haunt me in any shape or form. With this, we reveal our oneness with God. 
when we reveal our oneness with God, we are able to overcome any type of sin that happened in the past, any type of negligence that we've done in the past, any type of prohibition that we may have abrogated in the past. And we overcome them all, and we're able to come united with God. We see the absolute beauty in its fulfillment and completion. And then we tell God, now it's time for you to annul your vow and bring about the coming of Moshiach.